You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it. Um, currently, we're... what? What's that look? I had a gnat. As soon as you started talking, it like landed on my nose. Well, that... I don't even know where it came from. Yeah, and it seems like they, seems like they wouldn't be around at this timey <laughs> temperature. Oklahoma, or maybe that's why they are. A little, yeah, they might have been driven inside. <laughs> I, we're recording on Friday. What? Oh my gosh, what day is it? the eleventh? And yeah. March eleventh, and there is, there's got to be at least three inches, four inches of snow on the ground. We're getting in there, Norman, Oklahoma. We're getting and there outside of Tahlequah. I was promised less than an inch. Well, I wasn't promised. I mean, the weatherman never actually promised, but I was told less than an inch and I woke up (laughs) and Mickey was like, there's a lot of snow on the ground. And I get up and I'm like, this is not less than an inch. Yeah. As Ty said, those uh, guestiologists don't always get it right. Because (laughs) it was, yeah, it's like, it was supposed to be done by now, melting off by now. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to get up our mountain to get out of here. So if the yeah, video is well, late, that's why. Yeah. yeah. Well, to, to be fair, uh, you know, most of our weather detection stuff in Oklahoma is specialized towards tornado. Yeah. Tornadoes and whatnot. So I don't know if that affects our ability to predict snow or not. You can only have one area of emphasis. Everything else is off limits. <laughs> but um, but yeah, we can we can tell you where a tornado is within a less you know within a like two or three block uh, accuracy. But we and where's going to be snow, in five minutes? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. I mean, we we can. I I will say I the meteorologists here do a fantastic job of keeping as many people mm-hmm. safe as they can during tornado oh, yeah. season. Absolutely. Because I tell you, the the death tolls here could be significantly higher if we did not have the the people working. I mean, there was, and sometimes, okay, this is totally off the path, but, <laughs> you know, like Oklahoma, we have some serious storms. And there was one year, uh, not too long ago, where it was just rain, rain, rain constantly with storms and... We probably, I think we made the national news. That was when the 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 barges broke loose and wound up getting mm-hmm. sucked into it's that like dam. Like a thirty year flood, yeah, yeah. And um, but with that, we had a lot of severe winds and tornadic activity. And there was uh, our the meteorological teams were working, like basically living in the studios mm-hmm. in the in the radar rooms and whatnot, uh, mm-hmm. sleeping there. And it it was just nuts. Um, so no, I, no it's I'll great. let's say they do a great job. Uh, they they go above and beyond uh, when it's needed. And so thanks, guys. I guess if you happen <laughs> to listen to the show. Um, well, okay. So one of the things I do, I have to bring this up because if you live in Oklahoma, you have your favorite meteorologist, and like people are like fanatical about their meteorologist because this guy is the one they turn to to save their lives so this is kind of like one of the cool things about oklahoma is those little fan clubs uh there's one like travis meyer he's one of the big ones in our area it's hilarious to see some of the things that have been they've got him like compared to chuck norris and those will be making the rounds again soon because tornado season will be upon us and uh, you know i think it's just the oaky sense of humor when you live kind of in constant threat of uh the winds might actually carry you off so right yeah water you know float you away (laughs) yeah now in in uh this area, it's in the Oklahoma City area. It's David Payne's the big guy. Before that, it was Gary England. Um, when Gary retired, no one knew what was going to happen. There was a lot of pressure on David, and but he's done a pretty good job. So, I mean, this shows big you... shoes to fill. <laughs> 
the, this shows you just how crazy we are about our meteorologist out here, which is is funny because it's not something you expect to. Uh, it, it's just weird, you know. <laughs> it just that this is kind of. Oh yeah, let's stop and talk about famous meteorologists. Um, that's that's part of living in Oklahoma. So, mm-hmm. but don't let that scare you off because they are no, so no. good. You can live safely in Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and for the most part, I mean most of the tornadoes kind of happen in, in the same general area. <laughs> so you kind of just learn where to not buy a house. Right. Um, and so that, that's kind of where that, that ends up. And, you know, you have a storm shelter or a friend with one and you, you do the best you can. Well, see, and that's more your area. Cause out here we don't, you know, you just kind of watch the news. That's about all of them. We don't have a storm shelter. And I know people freak out because, oh, you live in Oklahoma and don't have one. I've well, it's seen, about like, where you live in Oklahoma. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And even though there's only like, what, two and a half hours between us, it's a big difference. It is. I'm, um, yeah, there, it's not as big a deal uh, because you got the mountains there to break things up. You're not seeing as many tornadoes. Uh, yeah, and I but, think we're down a little valley, so you know it's just kind of like hop, skip, and jump over us in our new house. So that's <laughs> right, right. So that's my theory, anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, and over here in Norman, everything is flat. So, and why I don't live in Norman? <laughs> I will say we do still get the really heavy hail. Um, yeah, yeah, I'll probably like get more of that. Sounded too. like the last big hailstorm sounded like someone was just running across the like. Not someone, like many someones <laughs> running across our roof. Um, so, but I know that's why everyone's tuning in is because they want the weather Can conditions we for weather? Oklahoma. And what's funny is you and I never talk about weather like at parties or do small talk about weather. So this is kind of hilarious that this is like the rabbit trail we ended up on. <laughs> well, it's because of the snow. Less than an inch. Uh, this is not less than an inch, guys. No. It's um, not. This is where this is where my complaints start. I'm done. I have new flower beds that I want to plant full of flowers and tomatoes and all that good summer stuff. And yeah, so I'm over it. I, I'm and I'm so. with you. Well, this is like I think the fourth snow we've had here in Norman. So I'm. If I wanted snow, I'd move to Colorado. I don't live in Colorado. I, exactly. I, yeah, exactly. I was, yeah, I'd move so. farther south if I thought my husband would melt, but. Evidently, so, that's not an option. <laughs> I guess I should take note of the timestamp to put it in the show notes to let everyone know when we're done talking about the weather <laughs> in Oklahoma. So that being said, we've got you've got notes on the Bible, right? I do. I actually do. Uh, so we finished up with uh, chapter 21 last week about David's mighty men. We talked about the contradictions and craziness in that um, episode. So um, we're actually going to move forward remember we're working through that chiasm when we started at both ends and i'm taking the parallel passages that go together and then we're working towards the center to see what is that central text to these last four chapters so that we get the point of what the editor's really trying to drive home and so this means that we're going to skip from the end of 21 over into chapter 23 and this is going to be verses 8 through 39 um now in 21 Like I said, David's mighty men, we were talking about all the giants they killed, and now we're going to talk about David's mighty men again. Now, if you read ahead and you looked at what we're going to be covering, uh, you're probably hoping I don't go through this word by word, phrase by phrase, because honestly, it's kind of, it's just one of those passages that there's some interesting stuff in it, but you kind of have to dig beneath to get to the interesting stuff. Otherwise, it just seems like a list of names a list of places and ranks. And uh, so we're just going to pick up on um, some important points because most of the commentary is actually about spelling and typos. And it's, it, it's not like good theological stuff. And so I think you kind of really have to be a bigger nerd than even I am to, to really enjoy that. And I think actually most commentators just do it so they can fill the page. Um, so anyway, This list of guys in chapter 23 is primarily made up of guys from the tribe of Judah. And uh, this suggests that it was probably composed early on in David's reign. 
And additionally, if you look at the names, you're going to find that Azahel, which is Joab's and Abishai's brother, is included. Also, Uriah is included, and they're both dead by this point in the story. So the fact that they're included um, actually poses some interesting questions, and we'll talk some more about uh, that as we get there. Now, there's a similar list in First Chronicles 11, 10 through uh, 46, and you know that list has some variations in it, and this is where a lot of the commentators kind of get lost in the weeds as far as, okay, is this guy this guy, or is that guy that guy, because the, the spellings are just off enough that there's a little bit of um, a little bit of question, but really not so much that you have to spend a lot of time on it. Uh, we already talked about how names changed in an earlier episode and why sometimes there are these variations. So I'm not going to go over that again. What is interesting is the placement in the books. Because where a passage is located, particularly in a historical book, it tells you a lot. And mm. so in 2 Samuel, we have this kind of at the end of David's reign. And then in 2 Chronicles, we actually have it before David uh, tries to bring the ark into Jerusalem. And so that further supports the idea that this list is from early on in David's reign. And we also have two other lists in Chronicles, which add to that argument, because one of them is people who joined David after he became king. So this list would actually be before he was um, the king of all of Israel. The mm -hmm. next list would be when he became king of all of Israel. And there's a third list of people who were present when David was anointed at Hebron over all of Israel. So... That's another way we look at dating. So we, when people talk about, oh, well, you know, if they're just looking at the Bible, trying to figure this out, then how are they figuring it out? People are just guessing. No, there, there are pieces of the puzzle that we're looking at. And we're actually, a lot of times, we're looking at pieces of the puzzle that not only do we see, but have been looked at and examined over the ages by multiple sources. I mean, we go back in the Old Testament to the rabbis. We get stuff written down. You know, the Talmud's a great source for that. Um, whether or not you want to agree with the theology presented in the Talmud, you can still see um, their commentary on the placement timing of the text. That's still valid. And then you get into the medieval uh, scholarships, and then you get the early church fathers. I mean, there's a wealth of information here. This is not just guesswork. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, well, I, and, yeah, but yeah, having having that commentary, like you said, does help date things because if you can date a commentary, even if you can't mm -hmm. date the document. You can see that, hey, during this time they were talking about those things, and precisely, and it's stuff. It, it's stuff like, you know, you get into the, you know, you get into the debates about the Book of Enoch, which we know uh, a lot of those are kind of superfluous. And it's, you know, you look at the New Testament writers; they reference that book, uh, mm -hmm. so it's like, well, it's at least respected enough to be referenced, but and and not always refuted by the New Testament writers. So the information in there must be at least somewhat valid. Yes, and it had to have been written far enough before the New Testament in order to gain that reputation. And you also have to include in there the fact that there's no printing presses. So if somebody read a copy of that book, they got a hold of something someone wrote. And it's a mm -hmm. You know, it's not the longest book, but it's a pretty lengthy book. Sure. Um, we're going to actually be talking about that um, later on, because not in this chapter, but I did some work with Enoch, which is kind of interesting, I think. But um, yeah, so it, it's it's definitely there uh, that you see how the, the dating kind of, it, it's taking these fragments, these little clues, these bits of information, plugging all the information in. And I, I will say this. Most commentators will tell you something like this book was probably written around this time, sort of. It was approximately these dates because we can't tell you, you know, June 15th on, you know, 23-7 of, you know, BC. We, we can't do that. So most commentators are responsible enough not to try to do that. And if someone tries to give you like, you know, this is dead on date for something like that they're probably making it up and they probably shouldn't be respected as a credible source so just my two cents now <laughs> i mean you're giving me that look uh just quit overstating things i mean that, that's just one of my pet peeves people in faith who, who try to overstate things yeah. in order to prove a point because what you wind up doing is you actually wind up lying 
that so don't do that that's not helping anyone mm-hmm. so i can't remember but, what we were talking about that one time uh, you might remember what example i was using i can't remember what it was but they're you know we try to make the bible a little t- a little too miraculous uh as it were uh and then, and then you go, no, that this, this was just kind of an idiom that people used. And you're like, oh, okay. It's like making language, making language and phrases a little too holy and whatnot. Well, and really that just ends up in mysticism and magical kind of gibberish. And, you know, the Bible is miraculous. It's not magical. And the difference between that is God is the one who enacts miracles when he chooses how he chooses, you know, sovereignty. And then uh, the magical is that somehow we can provoke or invoke God to to do these things by saying the right words or the right phrase. And, you know, that's, that's just not how it works. And uh, you know, that's hard. I mean, to, to actually sit back and say, okay, I'm gonna let God be God and do what he wants to do and to actually be comfortable with it. Because a lot of times we're not, uh, mm-hmm. you know, whether we want to be honest about that or not, uh, God gets to do what he wants. And that includes doing things that blow our minds and defy our logic or our understanding. That's okay. It's just one of the perks of being God. So anyway, um, uh, We'll come back to some more sovereignty issues later. Uh, we'll set Nathan off, light his fuse. So anyway, uh, Alter, <laughs> Alter notes that in this passage here in Second Samuel 23, we have crabbed language. And I'm using some of his quotes because, you know, it's Alter. He just has a great way of describing things. Uncharacteristic prose an abundance of textual difficulties. So he sees this as more evidence that this is a very old passage. And, you know, unfortunately, just like a lot of antiques that get worn and used and tossed around and maybe not taken care of and then restored, you're always going to have that evidence of the passage of time. And, you know, textual uh, documents are no different. Uh, So he thinks that possibly this could have even been written during David's time. It's not unthinkable. Because, I mean, after all, David is establishing a royal court. We're now having that governmental system of protection in place that's going to preserve these documents in a way that hasn't happened before. And this is why a lot of stuff written before uh, this list that we have, as far as the whole Bible, tend to be songs. Because songs are easy to remember. Now, when you're getting to the more technical stuff, now you need a structured societal system to protect these things. And so, mm-hmm. you know, David's making that. Uh, another interesting element is um, how the list is written. Alter notes this, that it's not a narrative. It doesn't tell a story. Uh, all the way through Samuel, we've been having, you know, it's story time. You know, you, <laughs> you tell all this stuff and you, you get all this explanation. And yeah, I'm, I'm so, still, I, still I'm relevant. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. I, I guess. I was I was thinking of a uh, a popular criticism by someone <laughs> story time with Uncle Samuel, uh, right? Well, that's that's how we do it. I was thinking of the the meme, the guy who goes around story time. Anyway, uh, so but you know, Alter doesn't. It, he notes this that there's there's not the story, and the reason why that's important is because when you start like throwing out these big events and you just kind of reference them basically what you're telling the reader is you should know this this is just a reminder that this is the guy who did this and so you know we could talk about you know Lindbergh and maybe you don't remember his name but you remember that there was you know that there had to have been a guy who flew across the ocean you know or it, you can toss out these events and now you're giving the name. So he's just reminding people, hey, this is who did this. So, yeah, you know, it's part of your history. Don't forget who to credit with it. And the the idea that it's a prompt for the memory, it's not to explain things to people who should already know. Uh, the list is arranged. We go from a highest rank, those closest and uh, and to David, those who are the most important. And then we work our way down and out through the troops. And um, this is actually kind of an interesting thing, because if you read through it, you're going to find this reference to three, thirty, third. Uh, there's depends on which translation you um, reference, because there's a lot of debate on how do we translate this Hebrew word, shalashim. Um, we really don't know. And 
you know, most translations do land on three, just as the number three. And, you know, the context usually tells us how we should translate this, whether it should be three, 30, or, or third. Unfortunately, um, we're dealing with pretty much an unknown context because we're talking about military language, we're talking about a military list, and military, you know, the, the, the arrangement and the way their structures varies not only from country to country, but from army to army, which branch we're talking about. So it's hard to pull examples to say, okay, this is exactly what they're speaking of. Um, you know, another way that we, we work on translation is to look at background information. We don't have a lot of background information. The top three guys on this list, this is the only places they're mentioned, are in these kinds of lists. So we can't say, oh, okay, well, this is where he, he uh, ranked within David's army. So it's kind of uh, difficult to say exactly how this should be translated and interpreted. Um, now, when you consider like the first guy, we're just going to look at him. He's got this wonderfully long name, Jeshebasheth. Um, he's the chief of three. And Zamora offers, this is how many options Zamora considers in his um, commentary. So just hang on because there's several. So it says that he is chief of three. So we're looking at that word chief. What does that mean? Is that a general? Would that be a, you know, a, an admiral? At what rank would we place him at? We really don't know. So these are the options. One who stood immediately next to the king and was commander of the army. Okay, sounds reasonable. Officers of the third rank below the king and commander of the army. So got two different positions there. The third man in a chariot, a special group of warriors whose original distinction had been that they fought in three men's squads. That's similar to the Ugaritic uh, word for metal. Therefore, it's referring to someone who wears armor. That this is actually a description of a fighting style that mirrors Pharaoh's chariot charioteers. Uh, the third ranking officials like the Greeks in the original hometowns of the Philistines. So pick one, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of options. That's how kind of hazy this idea of three is. Uh, one thing that is clear that inclusion in this list really requires almost this supernatural feat of bravery and courage. Um, so that is common to everyone and we got to remember, if these guys were fighting giants and they are all equal to the task, it, it's, these are pretty impressive guys. You know, this is not just a group of, of warriors who were, you know, could shoot an arrow straight or could throw the spear the farthest. This is hand-to-hand -hand combat with giants. And we need which, to remember... Which we just watched uh, the first part of Princess Bride last night. So I'm thinking oh. of, of Wesley now. <laughs> Uh, would he have been among the mighty men? <laughs> he, uh, he, he bested a giant. <laughs> well, uh, you know, and that's one of the, the arguments, too, uh, that's out there, which I actually just don't think makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, a lot of people who are giants today have a pituitary issue mm -hmm. that causes them to grow abnormally tall, but it also causes heart issues. It causes uh, balance issues. It causes a number of health problems that doesn't make them particularly... Uh, intimidating foes yeah well and actually that was um who is it what's his malcolm gladwell uh has a a, a and I, I think we did we mention this during the goliath stuff or not i don't remember i don't but remember he he's he has a talk about it um how if the biblical proportions are correct it is possible that goliath had some kind of pituitary issue uh which would also commonly affect sight um, mm -hmm. Because in the story, he he tells David, say, like, come here so I can see you. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So we, you know, we're looking at someone, you know, David fighting with artillery at a distance safe enough to get somebody with poor vision. Uh, well, so that's, uh, that that was, I, I thought that was interesting, but I don't know exactly it's, the It's an interesting thought. Here's the reason why I can't completely buy in to at least the totality of his argument. The giants were feared. And they were seen as as intimidating. Uh, and so evidently they weren't just kind of bumbling 
elves who, who couldn't fight, they actually were considered to be formidable uh, adversaries. Mm-hmm. So, you know, could they, you know, do they have vision problems? Possibly, but it's still, if you had to get up and fight them, it wasn't like you could shoot them with a sniper rifle at this point in time. And yeah, a sling would allow you to get some distance from them. But it seems that there's actually more going on face-to-face with these guys than just um, what David did. And the other thing to remember about these guys, too, is they're all fighting on behalf of the Lord. Um, If Israel, as the Torah says, belongs to God, then anyone who is fighting in defense of Israel is actually fighting as an act of obedience and faith. And so huge point there, because when you notice that it talks about who wins and how they win, it's because God fought for them or God fought with them. And so God works victory for them. And that's a really uh, huge point in this is that these guys aren't just out there trying to show out, show, show off who can be the manliest man. They are actually trying to, to defend God's territory for the purpose of keeping Israel safe. The, the people within the country, the women, the children, the, those who can't fight for themselves against armies of giants. Um, you know, I think we sometimes forget that this is this is not some kind of hypothetical. And for us, I, maybe what's going on with the events with Russia and Ukraine are kind of making it more real to us now that that there is, you know, war has an impact on people, real people. It's not yeah. something that just happens on a screen. It it, it damages the societies that it, it impacts. And so, uh, you know, this is the reality for ancient Israel that war, yes, it wasn't being fought with planes and tanks, but when you're the person whose house is being invaded, then it doesn't matter what they're using to invade it with, you you want it to stop. You need it to stop for the safety of your family and loved ones. So um, these heroic deeds, they're not just people showing off. They're not acts of aggressions. These are Philistines who are coming into Israel to attack. And um, we really can't we don't have a place within the narrative of Samuel to uh, try to um, uh, to try to to place these with any kind of certainty. There's a few that we might have some idea, but overall, we we just have these these kind of just these little snippets thrown out without any place to really plug them in. Uh, now, the first man on the list, as I did mention earlier, has that great long name, Joshebashath, Joe. Joshebashebeth. Somebody needs to name their kid that. Okay, so there's no speculation at all when he killed, single-handedly killed 800 men. Okay, that's pretty doggone impressive no matter who you are. This is another one of those situations we talked about in a previous passage. Uh, You can go back and listen to it, where they believe because this is such an intimidating, great feat, and David is the hero of the story, that this has to be another name for David. Um, You know, I still have problems with that theory. Um, It is interesting, and it reveals a lot about the rabbis trying to elevate David. I mean, David is kind of the epitome of what they wanted the ruler of Israel to be like. And, you know, Israel under the reign of David and Solomon, that was considered to be Israel's golden age. So, um, you know, you kind of get the hero worship there, but I don't, again, don't overstate the Bible. Now, if you read through the list, and I think even if you haven't, you would really expect to see a name that's not here. The name that's, that's not in the list, you want to take a a jab at it to to figure out who it is joab it, yeah i gave you a nice little hint there do you like that uh so yeah joab he's missing completely i mean why isn't he included in david's mighty men uh i mean he has been at david's side he has defended david against outside threats he's defended david against himself he's defended david against david's family joab has been there all the way along and we do have the inclusion of joab's two brothers so why is he? Why is he not there? Um, he's not my there on the list. Ge- my first guess is that because he outranks them all. That's actually a very good guess, and that is one of the things that the rabbi said that Joab is so far above everyone that to include him on this list would actually be demeaning. So that is one option. 
another option is that this guy, this this first guy with the long name, I'm not even going to wrestle with again, uh, might be another name for Joab. And I would actually kind of buy that more than David. I would think if we're going to talk about David, we're going to use David's real name. So, um, but yes, Joab is conspicuous in his absence. But that tells you something about the the type of men we're dealing with. If Joab's not there for either reason, either Joab is like crazy insane that he's so far above a warrior who single-handedly kills 800 men, or, um, you know, this is Joab. This is the kind of warriors we're dealing with. We're not talking about regular warriors by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Eleazar, he's the second on the list. He's uh, one of the warriors who stood with David when the armies of Israel fled before the Philistines. So everybody else runs away in fear. David, Eleazar stays, and he fought until his hand froze on the sword. Uh, his muscles cramped up and were so locked into that sword that he literally could not release the sword for a while. Uh, and it says all that was left in his wake were just bodies ready to be stripped for plunder, which we know this is standard practice at this point in time. Mm-hmm. If you killed somebody, you got to take what they had, um, you know, because manufacturing replacement goods was not easy. So, you know, if you could grab a, a sword, grab a piece of armor, you, you, you used it because yeah. that's how you everybody, survived. Everybody likes free stuff, right? Right? It's amazing how many things don't change over the years, uh, or they're just all related to us. I don't know. Uh, so Shama, another person on the list, he defends a patch of lentils. Now, I mean, come on. In today's society, that sounds like something crazy because, I mean, lentils, good grief. No, this was like a main form of food. It, they're still eaten a lot in the Middle East country uh, regions. Mm-hmm. Um. And we know that this is standard practice. What did the Philistines do? We talked about this with Gideon and um, other, uh, was Gideon who fought the Philistines? Anyway, whoever he fought. Standard practice. Come in when it's harvest season and they're going to destroy the harvest. Yeah. And take, so you Take what you can, destroy the rest. Exactly. So you accomplish two things. You get to feed your people and you get to starve the enemies out. And so Shama uh, actually protected this patch of lentils and he's remembered for that why because it meant that the city probably got to survive i'm sorry for the bumping on the video here uh gus has decided that he uh needs my attention for whatever reason um gus is the cat yeah he's like you who (laughs) have not rubbing around my legs yes so anyhow he'll get bored and leave here in a second verse 13 through 17 we have a little hint of a narrative. Uh, again, we're not given a, a, any kind of placement or idea of where this goes. This tells the story of when David's pinned down with 30 of his men. The Philistines are encamped in the Valley of the Rephaim. And because of this, some of the commentators think that we should place this event sometime around 2 Samuel 5, um, 17 through 25. However, they're also in the cave of Adullam, which suggests that David was fleeing from Saul. So that would be 1 Samuel 22. So you see where we kind of have this problem with the dating. Um, you know, obviously more than one battle is going to happen in the Valley of the Rephaim. The bottoms of valleys make great places to have battles. They're relatively flat. The You know, you can kind of engage the enemy better there. If you've got a good hiding spot and it worked well once, why not use it again if it's, you know, so there's no reason not to think that David would return to the cave. I don't know when to place this, and I'm not going to try to suggest that I do. Um, but while they're there, David uh, muses aloud that it would be really great to have some water from the well at Bethlehem, the city where he grew up in. And, uh, you know, three of his men, they just, they hear this. You know, David, this is not a command, okay? Let's be very clear about this. David's just, he's in dire straits. He wants something comforting from home. He's probably thirsty, hot, and tired. They've been fighting. And he's like, you know, that would be really good right now, like you tend to do. And um, not that I've ever been trapped in a cave, but, you know, there's been those moments where just something from home would be nice. And three of these guys, they, they leave, they sneak past the Philistine guards, they get to Bethlehem, and they get some water and they bring it back to David. And 
David, whenever he gets the water, he he recognizes the jeopardy that his men place themselves in just to make him happy, just to bring him this bit of comfort. And he decides that he cannot drink the water. I mean, that's just too much. And so as it's the most precious thing in his possession at this point in time, David pours it out as a drink offering to God and he, he willingly gives it up. And it's really interesting because, um, I don't have it in my notes, but one of the commentators said that, I think it was one of the rabbis who said that David valued this as this water, as he would the blood that the, it had the same value as the blood of the men who risked their lives for it. And so he couldn't drink it because of that. Mm -hmm. And, so, and then, of course, what do you spell out for a sacrifice? And then, of course, and I won't go into all the, the possibilities, but then the rabbis go into this big, long speculation of, well, you can't off, make an offering if you're not at the temple or the tabernacle. And so did David offer this at the proper place? And was there an altar in the cave? Was it right to build an altar in the cave? Or did he hang on to it until they left the cave? Or, I mean, just this, you know, all this speculation on stuff that really mm -hmm. doesn't matter. The point is David didn't drink the water at the time. Um, but, you know, what this really does, it does demonstrate the level of commitment and loyalty David inspired. And I mean, that's very telling that if him as a leader could if he is a leader, uh, sometimes my Oki slips out. If he is a leader, could, could just muse aloud and say, hey, I want this water. That would be great. And his guys like literally put their lives on the line to, to fulfill a whim. That's, that's huge. It wasn't like he needed it to live. It, this was just a whim. It, it was a, you know, just a passing thought. You know, I grumble if my husband says, hey, go get me a glass of water out of the kitchen and I've got to walk across the room. Uh, you know, this, but David was able to actually, you know, just compel this kind of, of devotion from, from these guys that they were willing to risk everything for, you know, just to bring him a little bit of happiness. Mm -hmm. And, I think we forget that that had to be something that was innate in David. I mean, I, yeah, we like him because, you know, we know he's a biblical hero, but, you know, trying to imagine like actually interacting with him, you know, trying to imagine what it would be like to be in his presence, that people would respond to him the way that they do it. That's not normal. Right. So the next person on the list where we know this name, this is Abishai. He is uh, Joab's brother. Uh, David put him over his army at one point in time whenever uh, Shiva was in the rebellion. Uh, he's, we're told he's a chief over 30 men. Um, you know, we know that he has this fierce and loyal devotion to David. We're told in this passage that he's killed 300 men and he earns a name beside the three, but he did not attain the three. So think about that for a second. Abishai, as amazing as he was, as crazy as some of his exploits were, he's still not as great as the three greatest warriors in David's army. It, these guys were like the ultimate fighting force. I, and I don't think we realize that so often that I, they are really doing just crazy crazy things out there on the battlefield. Benaniah, um, he is the doer of great deeds. He, um, we don't really know what some of those, those great deeds are other than what's told here, but the fact that, you know, he's called this in light of what we've just heard, 800, 300 men. I mean, the guys who went and risked their life for some water, this is crazy. Um, we're told that he strikes down two aerials of Moab. Now, we don't know what these are. Ariel uh, means uh, lion of God in Hebrew, but why would would Moab have this aerial? We, 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 there's some confusion here, okay? Nobody has a good answer. I think probably one of the best probabilities is that this is some kind of cultic object or objects um, that are being used as some kind of, you know, maybe an image of a lion that's being used to worship. We don't know, but he fights 
uh, he strikes them down and he's remembered for this. And we do know that whenever the warriors destroy cultic objects, this is something worthy of being uh, praised for within the, the Samuel narrative. He also fights a giant. Now here in Samuel, we, we only know that he fights an Egyptian, but if you go over to first Chronicles eleven 23, we're told this Egyptian is seven and a half feet tall. And we're also told that his spear is like a weaver's beam. Hmm. So definitely a giant. What is interesting, we have absolutely no mention of any kind of conflict between Israel and Egypt during David's reign. So why would he kill an Egyptian? Most probably because this is a mercenary soldier who hired out. Hey, he's a big guy. He can throw a spear that's like a weaver's beam. He's going to go make some money. This is typical standard practice in all of history. We know this. Um, a few other interesting things about Benaniah that we glean from Chronicles is that his father's the chief priest, so he's mm -hmm. a Levite. Mm -hmm. Levites are known for being fierce. This is how they became the chosen ones to defend the tabernacle. Uh, he's head of David's bodyguards, and uh, he will become the commander over Solomon's army. So, I mean, this guy's no slouch. And as impressive as he is, the three are still more impressive than him. So next word, uh, uh, next name on the list is uh, Asashel, who is killed by Abner. And we remember him from the first part of 2 Samuel. He's part of the 30. Remember, he's Joab and Abishai's brother. And he's really kind of the last name of interest for a moment. But uh, we'll come back to, of course, the last name on the list, which is of interest. But overall, the list reveals an interesting, um, an interesting blend of people. So we have three from the tribe of Benjamin. We have two from Manasseh. We have two from Ephraim. We have three from Dan, one from Gad, an Ammonite, a Hittite, and maybe one from Maka if one of the ones from Dan really was from Maka instead of Dan. Um, okay. Well, I mean, it, what it does, it shows that even though the most of them were from um, from Judah, David was gathering people from all around. That it's not just confined to Judah. And if this is early in his reign, that's really big, because especially the three Benjaminites, considering that Saul, before David takes the throne, is the king, and what's Saul's tribe? It, it's Benjamin. Um, now. One of the problems with some of the cities, you know, there's cities of several different names. Maka, um, we've got a couple of different Makas, just like we got a couple of different um, cities named Paris. Sure. I mean, if, if somebody from Oklahoma tells you that they took a trip to Paris, they probably went to Paris, Texas. So anyhow, we're... Um, we've got this list and we're told at the end of the list that there were 37 in all. Now, anybody who can count automatically knows that this is incorrect. There's not 37 names. Um, the only way you get 37 is if you add Joab to the mix. And we all know that Joab should be on the list, but he's not. So there's this, there is this idea that maybe Joab was taken off the list later on because when we get into David's death, uh, it, over in First Kings, we find out one of the things that David does is command that Solomon actually kill Joab for evils that David felt had been done by Joab. So um, the other thing to note about this list in particular is Uriah's name is the last name on the list. It's very conspicuous in the fact that it's the last name on the list. You know, you've got all these great, you know, daring acts of courage and then Uriah and the writer is being very intentional he wants you to remember that as great and as wonderful as David is the guy he killed was just as impressive as all these other guys don't forget Uriah I mean mm -hmm. Because I mean, when you think about the fact that Uriah the Hittite was fighting for Israel, the guy is fighting to defend God's country. I mean, he he deserves to be remembered. And so um, if you go over to First Chronicles and read 
uh, read their list over there, you're going to find there's 16 names, additional names after Uriah. It doesn't stop there. So Chronicles, you know, they, yeah, they include Uriah, but they, they kind of hide him in the masses, if you will. They, you know, he just becomes another name on the list. Where here in Samuel, it's kind of like a slap in the face. Don't forget Uriah. Sure. It, it's, I, to me, I mean, like I said, this is kind of one of those things that even after I studied it, I, I it was still just a list of names. But at the same time, it, it's it was really good to stop and think about what it meant to be a warrior in David's army. Now, there's um, a couple of reasons why we have this list of his mighty men. Um, it wasn't all that uncommon, but it wasn't super common for kings to list all of their warriors. But one of the reasons is that the list could actually say, hey, if these guys who were this great and so you know courageous and so daring were willing to follow David, that tells you how great of a king and a person he was. Because only a great person could inspire this from such great warriors. Um, the second reason that it could be included is that to remind us, David didn't do all this on his own. And, you know, Dave, when David's fleeing from Saul, remember, we've got 400 guys following David around when he's fleeing from Saul. So David was never on his own. And he always had people on his side and helping him out. And I think too often we think, oh, it's just David. We've got kind of that image of David standing on that field approaching Goliath in our minds. And we never stop and tweak that and realize that there comes a point where he he really is relying on the ability of these men who surround him. And so it's it can elevate David from the standpoint that, yes, he does inspire this kind of devotion, but it's also kind of brings him back to earth a little bit that he, he wasn't, you know, so great that he didn't need help. And so we also have this really interesting thing where because of what we saw in the earlier chapter back in 21, David, he's not the only giant killer. Mm-hmm. You know, he is surrounded by these other men who are capable of doing exactly what he did. And so as impressive as his military exploits are, in many ways, there's not as much as special about David as you might expect there to be. I mean, God could have chosen any one of these other guys and appointed him, anointed him uh, king over Israel. So on one hand, we should really be uh, in awe of Israel, who, you know, this country that has these amazing warriors and all of these mighty men who are willing to defend her. But on the other hand, we should be asking ourselves, why David? Mm-hmm. Why is he the one that God chose when, I mean, obviously, I mean, that's kind of how, sorry about Gus, uh, that's kind of how the the, the story of David opens up uh you know samuel goes in to anoint the king and he sees david's brothers and you know he's ready to anoint the first brother he sees because he's far more impressive Mm -hmm. than david and so it's very fitting that david's story concludes with this reminder that you know he's not the only one who can kill a giant he's not the only one capable of all of these things so that, that's really all I have to say about our list of mighty men. Uh, there, It's kind of a crazy story because I don't think we often remember that this is not a solo endeavor by David. Right. And how much he really relies on other people to help him through this. But... Anyhow, moving on, uh, we're in Psalm 22 is where we're getting right. I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 22, which is a psalm. Uh, it's just plopped right in the middle of the story. All we're told about it is that it's David's psalm of deliverance. And, you know, we have a lot of psalms that are attributed to David. but And this is one of 13 of those psalms that is specifically attributed to David and connected you know connected to specific events in David's life but there aren't a lot of psalms in the narrative themselves so when you see something that's kind of not normal kind of unusual you need to ask why here why now why this right and 
you know, and, and a lot of times that's all we need to do. Evidently, my cat decided to die today. I don't know. I mean, he's not literally die. He just thinks he is because I'm not paying attention to him. It's cold outside. He doesn't. <laughs> he's <Yeah>. bored. <laughs> he really is. He he probably knows that the bird feeders are like loaded and he probably wants to go stalk them. And he knows I don't let that happen. So anyhow, so we have this suggestion by Arbanel. Uh, we've talked about him. He's one of the, the famous sages with commentary on the Old Testament. Uh, and it's as good as any, honestly. Uh Sometimes when you read this rabbinic and sage, the commentary of the sages, and even the medieval uh, commentators, they aren't any different than what you're going to find in today's commentaries. Uh, sometimes they're radically different, but that's the reason why you kind of got to use some some judgment and discernment to figure out who you need to listen to. Just because someone is talking about the Bible doesn't mean that they are um, correct. So. Um, so Arbanel says that David's other psalms are connected to an isolated event in his life, but this one refers to a general theme of overcoming an adversity throughout David's life. So, um, you know, this one is kind of encompassing the whole of his life instead of just a specific event. And that's the reason why we've got it here is because now we're wrapping up David's reign. We're getting to the end of David's story because the next chapter is David's last words. And first Samuel's going to, I mean, sorry, first King is going to open up with David's death, the specific events surrounding David's uh, death. And this plays into um, the, first, the next question we have to ask, but first let me give you all some setup. So first Samuel 22 and Psalm 18 are essentially the same Psalm. And the, the thing is, even though they're essentially the same psalm, there are several uh, differences, uh, mostly which it's the spelling, uh, which you as an English reader, most of our listeners as English readers are never going to notice because those spelling changes don't translate over um, into the English. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a few lines where their order is swapped. Uh, some of our verb tenses between the two are different. Um, sometimes the subject and adjective, uh, pairings are switched up. So in order to notice these differences, basically what I'm saying is you're having to be super geeky and nitpicky. And, uh, honestly, most people aren't going to, to notice it because they are so close. So our question is, why are, why do we have the differences? So few different options here. First. First Samuel 22 is part of the narrative and it would have been meant to be read out loud. And so the spellings in this passage tend to actually be more phonetic. So if you're reading a passage uh, out loud in front of an audience, you would, you wouldn't stumble over the words. Like I tend to do it just be easier. It could roll off the tongue. Um, Psalm 18 is a songbook. And so, you know, it's meant to be used in regular worship. And so the spelling is more what is considered a standardized spelling for the Hebrew. It's what the audience would be uh, used to reading if they read on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so, you know, even in English, we know that there's words that if you pronounce them phonetically versus how the standard spelling is, there's a difference. You know, th there's we can't always go by spelling to get the proper phonetics. And so in Psalm 18, we have the standardized spelling that people should know. In 2 Samuel 22, we have the phonetic spelling because we're dealing with two different usages here. Now, 2 Samuel, obviously, this is an expression of David's individual experience. This is what he sees, how he sees what he has lived through. And this is what he considers to be a proper um, response. Psalm 18 has a more universal uh, application because it's meant for anyone to be able to, to sing and anyone to be able to relate to, which is what you want in a worship song, even today. Mm -hmm. So that uh, there's several reasons and they all make sense and they all uh, really help us understand a little better. Now, the traditional Jewish view is that David first wrote this under inspiration to express his own 
uh, experience, but then God later inspired him to modify the book in order to uh, turn it into a psalm that the entire uh, nation could use. Eh, I don't know. We might kind of sort of could go that way. I really think probably what happened was uh, when the compilers of the psalms uh, started looking at what they were going to include, they said, hey, this would work, but we just need to kind of change some adverbs here and there. And they they made it more universal. That happens. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> and so um, every commentator I, I've read did agree that 2 Samuel 22 is most definitely older than the psalm. And it does look like it dates back to the time period when we would expect David to be writing. So it's one of our oldest psalms, which is really fascinating that we can actually look at something that was written as you know, 10th century BC. I mean, that that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, um, anyway, that it's the longest Psalm, uh, one of the longer Psalms, sorry, but it's the longest statement by made by David. Um, it's considered to be one of the 10 sacred songs that's going to be sang when the Messiah arrives. Um, and bonus, it gives us a chiasm within a chiasm because the psalm itself is a chiasm. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we're going to talk about that, but we're going to go straight through the psalm and then talk about the chiasm later. Um, the, the psalm is, at this point, typical ancient Hebrew literature. It's a commentary on the life of a king. And, um, you know, we, we, we should be familiar that a lot of times at the end of books, or at least two other times at the end of books within the Bible, when our main character, one of our main characters dies, he's given a song to sing. Um, go back to Genesis where Jacob dies. What's he do? He gives the, the psalm, the blessing, the song over his sons. And then Deuteronomy 32, Moses, same thing. Uh, oh, we're laughing. Uh, I, I was, I'm just, I'm thinking of operas and oh. a particular song about an opera. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. Well, well, yeah. No, uh, yeah, I'll fill you this, in later. There's this nice little, you know, there's this tradition where if you're going to die, you've got to leave your last words. And how do you do it? You do it in a way that's memorable. And especially if that it, those last words are meant to, to teach some theological lesson. I mean, and usually like in you know, more popular works, it's not necessarily the, necessarily theology, but there's supposed to be some life lessons, some some wisdom that were earned, was earned throughout this person's life. And so uh, we definitely see that as something that's ongoing today. And so David is going to give us what he's learned in the psalm because we need to know this. And now this is not his last words, but it's next to the last words because what we're going to find out is the next chapter is actually considered to be his last words even though his death doesn't happen until the next book. And this is actually something that connects him back to um, Abraham, because if you look at Abraham's story, it also has kind of those two endings. And And Joshua. Joshua. Yeah. So this, this idea that, you know, there's, there's like this acknowledgement you're going to die, but then there's the actual death. And it's in that moment of acknowledging the death that people actually kind of have these profound thoughts that they need to share. And, you know, this is why we have this song here at the end of Samuel, because now we need to talk about David's life as a whole. And we need him to, to really kind of stop and, take stock. And I think we're going to be surprised at some of the observations that David makes about himself in this psalm, because there's some things in here that if just taken at at surface level, uh, if we aren't taking into account all of the things within David's life and the truth of who God is and God's forgiving love and his mercy, it's going to look like David's just telling lies about himself. Mm. I mean, and I know that that sounds kind of harsh that I would say something like that, but David is actually making some theological statements. And here's how I kind of like um, make the delineation. We have truth and we have facts and, and truth is the world and reality as God sees it. 
that it's how things are going to be. It's how he intends for things to be. It's how he's going to bring all things to be at some point in the future, probably. Then there's facts. And facts are the nitty gritty day to day things that you and I deal with. Um, you know, I, an example, uh, my father owns the cattle of a thousand hills. This is my God. He's rich. He's prosperous. There's wealth beyond measure in his presence and at his disposal. Sometimes I'm counting pennies to make ends meet. So truth is, I, I'm a princess in the, uh, in the kingdom of God who has no reason to worry or fear about being taken care of. The facts are, I still have to be a responsible adult and watch my budget. And so truth and facts don't always line up well in this reality. But that's the great thing is God is working towards that happening. That's what history is building towards is that moment when truth and facts do line up. Mm -hmm. And I really do think that the moments in our lives when we see truth and facts lined up is when we, what we call a miracle. It's when the truth of what God sees and says about us actually is manifest in this world. And so, um, you know, David is looking at this not from the perspective of facts. He's looking at this from the perspective of truth and God's truths. And so that's significant. And I think sometimes, you know, we need to take this page from David where we look at our lives and go, okay, yes, I did sin horribly and not, you know, not downplay that. But there is forgiveness and there is grace and there's hope on the other side. And as I move forward, I need to embrace what God has said about me, not what I did in the past, because my past mm -hmm. no longer define me. I'm born new. I've been made new. I've been cleaned. I, all of this stuff is so so true. And I think so often um, we put this emphasis of, well, we fall into one of two ditches where we're either walking around so condemned and so incapable of functioning because we're having to face the fact that we are sinners who have sinned and, you know, maybe we've done some terrible things or, oh, we're free in the Lord and I never have to think about that again. We don't get to do that. We, mm -hmm. We've got to stay in the middle where we recognize and we own what we've done in the past, not as a way to beat ourselves up, but as a way to say, I know I'm capable of this, so I need to have safeguards in place to keep me from doing that again and to make sure that I'm walking in the truth of who God says I am. But who God says I am doesn't give me carte blanche authority to do whatever I want to do just because God doesn't, you know, hold it against me anymore. I, mm -hmm. You know, that, so, um, you know, how Paul put it, you know, should I send more so that grace will abound? You know, no, we don't do that. So, right. David's found that balance, I think, by the time, you know, maybe not the beginning of his reign, certainly not when he's with Bathsheba, but then there's that point of time towards the end of his life where he's able to look back with some, you know, well-earned wisdom and say, this is how I need to be viewing myself. And this is the truth I need to be embracing about my existence and my reality. So, um, I think we're going to put a semicolon there and we can get back to the meat of that Psalm next week. Uh, but that that's a good setup to kind of be thinking about how we should move forward into these words and, and consider them. Because Yeah. It's going to be kind of an interesting break from what we've been doing to where we've been so much in narrative and lists and mm -hmm. things. This is, this is going to be a kind of mixing it up. Yeah, well, and this is a really long psalm, um, but it, it's it's so good because uh, it actually, in all four of these chapters, one of the things I've noticed, there's this tendency to like go full circle to bring mm -hmm. us back to the beginning of the book. Right. And this psalm does that again. And so there's this reinforcement of, of you know, redeeming everything. So anyway, um, before I get started talking longer on something we've decided to hold off on <laughs> I'll sure. let you do our wrap up well yeah well yeah that's a good place yeah well we're excited to see <laughs> next week and we hope everyone out there is interested um let's uh be part of the conversation if you want to be part of the conversation raven creek sc on all the social media ravencreeksc.com is where you can find the show with show notes um on most of the shows we're still working through some of that uh you can find other shows as well uh that Raven Creek host 
Um, but be part of the conversation. Uh, send us a message. Let us know how things are going. And we will see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week. This is the Open Wallet Podcast, an exploration of personal finance. I'm Katie, a numbers nerd. And I'm Joe, a 40-year-old punk rocker. And And we're we're married. married. We're here to talk about and figure out all the personal finance questions we all deal with, like... How do I read my pay stub? How do I dress better on a budget? How do I start an emergency fund? What goes into buying a house? And lots more. So join us on Open Wallet Podcast on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts.